Although greatly in favour for a brief time at the end of the 17th century, Nathaniel Lee has largely been forgotten. Something of an enfant terrible in his heyday, his plays eventually fell out of fashion, and over 300 years later are still waiting for their big revival. It is difficult to produce an accurate chronology of his life because so many biographies disagree on its core facts, and rely on 17th and 18th century rumours to flesh it out. If we find a firm detail about his life in one place, we can be sure that it will be directly contradicted elsewhere. The few dates that we can be reasonably sure of are those of his plays. The compelling thing about Lee, however, is that his life and works are a voice for all the mad, bad danger of his time. Lee was at the height of his career during a period of history that combined great debauchery with intense political uncertainty. In Lee's own words, it was a wild, unthinking, dissolute age, an age whose business is senseless riot, Neuronian gambles, and ridiculous debauchery. All our hot hours burnt in night revels or drowned in day-dead sleep. Even the rumours themselves, the inability to clearly place facts about Lee's life, add to the sense of confusion. There is danger and uncertainty underneath the festivity. And sometimes the laughter ends abruptly. Hi, I'm Mari McNeil, and this is Gin and Gossip, Theatre History Between the Acts. Nathaniel Lee was born in Hatfield, slightly north of London, in perhaps 1649. His father was a clergyman who was doing rather well for himself under the Puritan government at that time, preaching sermons in favour of Oliver Cromwell and his men, and doing little favours for them here and there. The family was a large one, although perhaps not so large for the 17th century. Six sons and two daughters lived to adulthood. Nathaniel was the second son. He grew up in a house with a large library, filled with both religious and secular books. His father had a keen ear for music, and beautiful tunes would ring out through the house all day long. It was an ideal setting for a boy who was destined to write poetry and plays that reached for the divine themes and plundered the depths of the human spirit. Nathaniel grew up during an interesting time in British history. His childhood was spent during the Interregnum. Bad old Oliver Cromwell was in power after beheading Charles I in 1649 and taking on the title of Lord Protector. The Lee family's good fortunes can probably be traced to the father's willingness to find scriptural justification for the dealings of Cromwell's government. The state always finds a place for political sycophants. But Cromwell died in 1658, when Nathaniel was about ten. The death of the Protector left the government in something of a quandary. After several years of uncertainty, in 1660, Charles I's son, Charles II, was invited back from his years of gallivanting throughout Europe to be king. The Republic was over, and monarchy reigned again. Nathaniel Lee's father, conscious of this political about-face from Puritan to Cavalier, rather wisely made a sermon in which he recanted his approval of Charles I's death sentence and then had it published, just to make sure that everyone could see that he was firmly on the royalist side now. Charles II, who was not usually a man to hold on to long resentments, forgave him. 
and Nathaniel's father settled into a comfortable, if unexciting, existence for the remainder of his life. Charles II's return meant that it was time to party. During the eleven years of Cromwell's Puritan rule, the government had suppressed, among other things, Christmas celebrations, gambling, horse racing, the public theatre, and bear baiting. We can appreciate their views on that last one today, certainly, but Charles and his friends were keen to reintroduce all the old fun they'd had into the way that things were run. Charles had spent his years in exile, roving across Europe, and he had developed a strong appreciation for the sumptuous fashion, pretty women, and French theatre he had seen. When he arrived back in England in 1660, he saw no reason for the good times to end, and he promptly did his best to overturn the Puritan legislation. The cultural mood in the early years of his reign was one of drinking, dancing, making love, and going to the theatre. This was the society in which Nathaniel Lee spent his teenage years. Young Nathaniel was given a good education for a 17th century boy, first at Charterhouse School in London, and then at Trinity College, Cambridge in the late 1660s. Here he was exposed to the brilliant new ideas emerging in science and philosophy. One of his lecturers was a young Isaac Newton, whose work on refraction was just being developed, showing how an intense ray of light could be split into a rainbow of different colours. During his time at Cambridge, he began to show his potential as a poet, becoming involved with the 17th century equivalent of a student magazine. He and his fellow students published a volume of poetry on the death of the Duke of Albemarle. Lee's contribution was a rather toadying piece of writing, lauding the late Duke over such classical military generals as Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. While perhaps Albemarle was a better man than them, these undergraduates certainly thought so. The spirit and passion that Lee conjured up in this poem, however, foreshadowed the theatrics he would later use to great measure in his plays. Lee was not destined to follow his father's footsteps in the church. He came to London in around 1670, barely out of his teens, and hoping to rise to notice in Charles II's court. In this, he failed miserably. In order to attract the king's attention and be given some sort of little job to do, Lord Lieutenant, perhaps, or Chancellor of the Exchequer, one generally needed the interest and support of one of the king's cronies. While at Cambridge, Lee had caught the attention of the king's great friend, the Duke of Buckingham, who brought him to London with the idea of putting him into some sort of good position in society. Unfortunately, Buckingham was a very busy man during this period of his life, fighting duels and taking mistresses, and he had little time to spend on the fortunes of a juvenile poet. Left to his own devices, Lee fell in with some of the most notorious drinkers and debaucherers of Restoration London, setting him on the course he would follow for the rest of his life. Finally, in 1672, seeing no future for him among Charles II's grasping, jealous courtiers, he turned to the stage as an actor. During the reign of Charles II, there were two groups, known as companies, who were permitted to perform theatre for public audiences in London. These were the King's Company and the Duke's Company, both sponsored by the King and his brother, the Duke of York. Lee joined the King's Company, who performed in a theatre at Drury Lane. This theatre is now long gone, sadly, but when Lee joined up in 1672, it was just newly built. The old playhouse had burnt down to the ground earlier that year, as playhouses were liable to do back then, being made of wood and straw, and in its place was a new theatre. This building has been destroyed and rebuilt twice since then, but the theatre at Drury Lane stands today, in roughly the same location as it had done in the 17th century. Unlike the modern West End, where single productions often run on for months or even years, 
In the 17th century, plays were performed for very short stretches of time. Three nights was the usual run for a new play. A week was excellent, and a fortnight was outstanding. Much longer than that was hardly ever heard of. The first play to run for over six weeks without a break was The Beggar's Opera in 1728, years after Lee's death. When a new play came to the end of its run, the theatre showed popular stock pieces as one-offs until the next major new play was ready. During the Restoration, this often meant the hit plays from the first half of the 17th century, works by Ben Jonson, William Davenant, John Fletcher, and, increasingly, William Shakespeare. Lee was a handsome young man with a good, strong voice, and he soon won the role of King Duncan in an adaptation of Macbeth in 1672. Alas, his time on stage was short-lived. It seems that he was sorely lacking the dramatic skills and charisma that any actor needs to make a decent splash. After he had failed to make a name for himself as an actor, he turned to writing for the stage. Throwing himself into his new profession with a passion that he possessed for many of the things he loved in life, Lee at last found an arena for himself. In his first two years, he wrote and helped to produce four plays, and he quickly became the protégé of John Dryden, one of the leading playwrights of the Restoration. Dryden had risen to magnificent fame in the 1660s, and counted a lot of important men and women among his friends and patrons. He was a valuable contact for Lee to have. Lee also made sure to continue cultivating his relationships with the wealthy libertine friends he had made when he had first come to London. Initially, Lee's work inspired mixed feedback from the audiences. His first play, a tragedy about the Roman Emperor Nero, failed to stir up much excitement. His second, however, entitled Sophonisba, which told the story of Hannibal's downfall, was very popular among the fair sex, to use the phraseology of the time. Apparently, the ladies love a tragical romance. His third play, first performed in 1676, was a bombastic mess called Gloriana, and that was only performed once. As a dramatist, Lee wrote in a style known as the heroic mode. This is something that can be difficult to describe because it isn't a form that we really see in modern film or theatre. It's a medium that relies on spirit, passion and pathos. The acting style is bombastic and what we would probably think of as way over the top. A frequent comment was that the actors tended to roar their lines to the audience and when they wanted to be romantic they whined. The subjects of the play are often kings and warriors torn between romantic love and their sense of honour and they were frequently set in exciting foreign lands such as Morocco or Mexico, or perhaps in ancient Greece or Rome. These sites were paired with spectacular visual displays. Theatres used flashy special effects and elaborate painted backdrops. It is not a realistic genre. Nevertheless, the play's attention to detail was sometimes striking. A 1665 play called The Indian Queen which was set in the Americas, used a headdress from feathers actually brought over from Suriname, while in 1661 a play called Love and Honour excitingly used the very same clothes that Charles II had been crowned in. Charles was always willing to help out the theatre if it made him look good. The ranting theatrics, the extravagant dress, Nathaniel Lee's abilities as a playwright were particularly suited to the heroic mode. Like so much in his life, his work was bound to two extremes, the good and the bad. His plays were considered to be a hodgepodge of frenzied rhapsodies, with the expert parts competing with the shoddy for domination. Years later, the critic Joseph Addison wrote that these plays were frequently lost in such a cloud of words that it is hard to see the beauty of them. There is an infinite fire in his works, but so involved in smoke that it does not appear in half its luster. 
1677, Lee's play The Rival Queens was performed, and it was with this play that his reputation as one of the best heroic playwrights was established. The Rival Queens tells the story of Roxana and Statira, the two wives of Alexander the Great, and the great jealousy that they felt for one another. The play was a sensation. Each time it was performed, playgoers flocked to Drury Lane in droves as though it were the premiere of a new play, and one nobleman commented of the actor, Charles Hart, who played Alexander the Great, that his action in that character was so excellent that no prince in Europe need be ashamed to learn deportment from him. The rival queens established Lee as an important playwright, and the following year Lee and his mentor Dryden left the flailing king's company at Drury Lane for the more prosperous Duke's company, located at the Dorset Garden Theatre. This theatre was larger than the one on Drury Lane, and it provided good opportunities for Lee to stage the bombastic plays at which he excelled. In the years after the rival queens, Lee continued to write and collaborate on new works of heroic drama, putting out a string of plays during the late 1670s and early 1680s. Mithridates, Theodosius, Oedipus, Caesar Borgia, the Princess of Cleve, Lucius Junius Brutus, the Duke of Guise, and Constantine the Great. As you can probably tell from these titles, most of these plays centred around figures from antiquity, mostly kings and noblemen. Lee had a great talent for flattering the aristocracy. He earned himself the nickname Dedicating Lee due to his penchant for dedicating his works to the highest titles in the land. He had a particular knack for toading out to the ladies, a gift he had perhaps learned from his rake friends. To one of his female patrons, the Duchess of Portsmouth, who was also the king's mistress, he wrote that she had smiles of more delicate shine than April suns. I am resolved to look upon you daily and dedicate my life and labours to your grace, to spend all the store of my yet unexhausted fancy to your unbounded fame. For these words, she paid him a handsome twenty guineas. But we must not assume that Lee's interest in aristocratic crises always found him favour with the king and court. When his play Lucius Junius Brutus was produced in 1681, it ran for three nights before the Lord Chamberlain cancelled all future performances, much to Lee's disappointment, as it was a particular favourite of his. The play, it was claimed, contained veiled criticisms of the king. The theatres were only open at the king's pleasure, you see, and he enjoyed the right to exercise control over what was staged. Perhaps also there was some old lingering memory of Lee's father and his support of Cromwell, causing Lee's words to be viewed with some suspicion. During this time of great artistic productivity, Lee's drinking became more and more excessive. When his friends from university came to visit him, he drank. When his London friends gathered around him, he drank. When his aristocratic patrons wanted to thank him for the work he had done, he drank. And this, perhaps, affected his work. His sometime drinking companion, the Earl of Rochester, perhaps best known these days as the hero of a Johnny Depp film, wrote derisively of Lee that he had only as much wit as wine could supply. Lee's drinking became more and more excessive. He attacked a man in one of London's fashionable coffee shops. One of his aristocratic patrons invited him to his country house, but Lee disgraced himself by attempting to drink all of the wine in the wine cellar, and he was not invited back. By 1684, gradually alienating his friends, he was struggling to survive, and he was becoming increasingly unstable. In the end, he was sent to Bethlehem, 
London's most notorious mental asylum. Popularly known as Bedlam, the Hospital of St Mary of Bethlehem was in fact quite a new structure. Although Bethlehem had existed in some form or another since the 14th century, by the middle of the 17th century the medieval building was in a dreadful condition and in desperate need of refurbishment. Between 1674 and 1676, a new building was raised, designed in the style of Tuileries Palace, the normal residence of the French monarchy in Paris. The celebrity sculptor Caius Gabriel Sibber, whose son Collie would later rise to fame as a really great comic actor and a less great poet laureate, was brought in to decorate the building's exterior. The building was surrounded by beautiful gardens, and beyond the walls, Londoners could browse rows of bookstores. Rising above the entrance gates were two statues called Raving Madness and Melancholy Madness, which soon became one of the great sights of London. They were crafted, it is said, in the shape of two of the inmates, one of whom was Oliver Cromwell's porter Daniel, an enormous man who stood at seven foot six inches tall and had an uncanny knack for accurately prophesying the future. Also, our history books tell us. So much for the outside of the building. The inside was designed around two galleries, split into individual cells. There was space for 140 patients. The men and women it was feared would do harm, to themselves or to others, were shackled with manacles. During this time, the doctors in charge of curing the patients did their best, and Bethlehem was not yet the house of horrors it would later become known as, but 17th century knowledge of mental health treatment was sorely lacking relying on cures such as hot and cold baths and special diets to treat illnesses that we still don't completely understand today. If the conditions inside Bethlehem weren't dreadful enough, inmates suffered the indignity of being on public display. The intention was to use these poor men and women as a cautionary tale against excessive passion, but most visitors were more interested in the inmates as light entertainment. For as little as a penny, they could pay to enter the asylum and entertain themselves for a while, Watching these poor, unfortunate wretches, who often give them cause for laughter, as one contemporary author put it. Prostitutes lurked throughout the building, as it was believed that watching the patients' unbridled behaviour might stimulate the visitors' lusts. Meanwhile, thieves stole the inmates' food and possessions when they could. Lee would remain in Bethlehem for four years. We know very little of his experiences there, although it is rumoured that he spent his time writing a tragedy in 25 acts, a work that is lost to time if it ever existed. His expenses were paid for by the court, but still this did not make for a comfortable existence. During this time he was whipped by his keepers, his head was shaved so that his scalp could be blistered, and he was kept on a strict diet of milk. In the daytime he was kept in darkness to subdue his fits. Some of his visitors found him surprisingly lucid at times, however. To one he commented, I said the world was mad, and the world said I was mad, and they outvoted me. After he was released from Bethlehem in about 1688, Lee's illness was not cured, nor were his fortunes restored. He produced one more play, The Massacre of Paris, which was a revised version of something he had written before his years in Bethlehem. His final piece of published work was a personal poem, mourning the death of his friend Aphra Ben, the great dramatist. He received very little money for these efforts, relying mostly on a stipend of 10 shillings a week which he received from his old theatre company. During this time he was frequently subject to relapses in his mental health, and although he continued on his diet of milk, he never stopped drinking. <laughs> 
the once handsome playwright was now red-faced and bloated. About four years after his release, in the early 1690s, Lee went out on a drunken carouse, spending the evening at the Bear and Harrow Tavern, located on Butcher Row near the Strand. On his way home, he fell over and was smothered by London's bitter winter snow. He was about 40 years old. As with the date of his birth, even the year of his death is uncertain. Lee's posthumous reputation was little happier than his life. The rival queens was performed throughout the 18th century, it is true, but the blood and thunder style of heroic drama fell out of popularity in the decades after his death. By the middle of the 18th century, the fashion inclined more towards light comedies and domestic tragedies set in recognisable locations with middle-class characters. People lost interest in Lee. Tantalisingly, one of Lee's brothers is said to have had a trunk filled with his writings, perhaps including more of the playwright's wild works which had never been published during his lifetime. This trunk is long lost, if it ever existed. Lee's resting place, a burial ground on Portugal Street, not too far away from where he died, was torn down long ago, and on its place now stands the library for the London School of Economics. One of the fascinating things about Lee is that his contemporaries regarded his mental instability as conducive to his work. Lee's genius was something like a divine fury. One author, who wrote a short biographical sketch the year before the playwright's death, described him using a quotation from Seneca, Nullum magnum ingenium sine mixtura dementia fuit. There is no great genius without a tincture of madness. Another author wrote, with reference to the rival queens, that Lee was a mad poet who described in frantic verse the actions of a mad warrior. Like many men and women who struggle with mental illness, Lee was acutely aware of the vagaries of his own instability. In Caesar Borgia, written in 1680 when he was at the height of his career, we find the following lines. Like a poor lunatic that makes his moan and for a while beguiles his lookers-on, he reasons well, his eyes their wildness lose. He vows the keepers his wronged sense abuse. But if you hit the cause that hurt his brain, then his teeth gnash, he foams, he shakes his chain, his eyeballs roll, and he is mad again. This episode of Gin and Gossip was written and produced by me, Mari McNeil. You can follow the show on Twitter at Gin and Gossip Pod and check out ginandgossip.wordpress.com for show notes. Thanks for listening and have a great evening.